Welcome to the Positive Turbulence Podcast, Stories from the Periphery. Here we journey to the edge to talk to turbulators about their experiences creating positive change. Hi, I'm Karen Zadinga, your co-host for the podcast. Today I'm going to ask you to suspend your judgment for a while and tune in to an extreme but transformative idea. For the so-called knowledge worker, the personal laptop provided to you by your employer is a given. After all, you need that computer to get your job done, check email, etc., etc. Imagine now no personal laptop for you, and worse yet, sharing your workstation all day, every day, with someone else. When I've shared that idea with other designers and researchers, I've gotten not just no, but an emphatic, ugh, no. And yet, that's been an open secret to the success at Menlo Innovation, where Rich Sheridan is chief storyteller. Hi, I'm Rob Brodnick. In this episode, we talk to Rich Sheridan, author of Joy, Inc., Case Study of Menlo Innovation, and Chief Joy Officer, The Values of a Joyful Leader and How to Build a Culture of Joy. We'll hear about his company's mission to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. This episode is brought to you by College Confident. They will help you avoid college debt and get into the school of your dreams. Find out more at collegeconfident.org. Would also like to thank Mac Avenue Music Group as a contributing sponsor. Karen, I hope you get a chance to see it, but when the team comes back from lunch break and you think about a coding shop, you know, mm-hmm. developers and all that, to see them in action is is very much unlike any kind of coding operation I've ever seen before. Yeah. And it's not yeah. that they only write code. It's, but, it beats uh, the stereotype, doesn't it, Rob? There's an interesting launching point, actually, around the stereotype because, you know, if someone looked at a picture of this, they would see an open plan office, you know, and the idea of the CEO sitting among the team is not that unusual anymore. It was a few years ago, but it's relatively usual now. And that actually was one of the first questions I had was around the idea of this open plan space and how... And how you balance that with focus, like how, especially curious about how focus happens. And especially if you're sharing a computer with another, how do you get to that focus flow? That is the key. So the shared computer is what creates the focus. Ah, interesting. How? Tell me about that. So let's say you and I were at Starbucks, noisy, big Starbucks, people everywhere, drinking coffee, listening to music, talking to each other. And you and I are just sitting there across the table having a great conversation, what happens? All that background noise just disappears. It doesn't distract us a bit. We are able to stay in focus, in conversation, even with all that cacophony around us. It's really funny because I'll often share our story with people from a keynote stage. And after I get done and step off the stage, you know, everybody's milling about. There'll be hundreds of people. They'll all be in conversations. And this person will walk up to me and we'll start having this conversation about this very topic. And they're like, how do you maintain focus? And I said, just like we're doing now. And they're like, what do you mean? I said, you and I are having a great conversation right now, perfectly focused, even though there's hundreds of people talking around us. And they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's actually the pairing that creates the focus. And the other thing we're looking for, there's a lot of discussion about flow, and I'm not an expert on it, and I'm not a researcher on it. But I've watched, I'm probably an anecdotal expert on it because I've watched this environment work for 20 years. And we don't look for individual flow. We look for team flow. 
So this is a lot like a sculling team where everybody has to row together as opposed to I'm on the river by myself and I'm rowing by myself. And so because we're not only in pairs, but we're in pods of pairs. So like this table behind me here, the team chooses to push the tables this close together. They want to be that close because the team forms the space. But because the noise is all consistent, it's about the project they're working on, the cards they're working on, the technologies they're working in, the specific problems they're trying to solve this week together. That that shared noise doesn't upset the flow because the brain is this amazing filter, right? You can be in the middle of a noisy room, maybe you're all by yourself, and you ignore everything until you hit your, hear your name. And all of a sudden you hear your name and your head turns and your brain just interrupted you and it said, hey, by the way, you just heard your name. You should go see who's talking to you. And you find out, oh, it wasn't somebody talking to me, but they just said my name, but they were talking to somebody else. Any of us who have raised children know that even at this stage of my life, my kids are in their 30s now. If I'm in a crowded group of small children and someone screams out, you know, I'm like, where, 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 right? You know, <laughs> so it's actually a part of your brain called the reticular activator that's actually tuned to those kind of things. I think the word fire screamed in a particular way generates a certain response from all of us instantaneously. And so I think all of those cognitive psychology elements are at work here at Menlo. Yeah, I just, I read some research recently that, that said that people who are on certain kind of production tasks, like writing or, or doing other kinds of things, show increased productivity when they're doing their work in a third space kind of place where you have a crowd, but is not a crowd that there is there for the person, as opposed to someone being purely isolated you know, in a silent environment, something about the way the mind works. I mean, it's almost like the crowd noise becomes some kind of white noise that creates an isolation space. And if you're sitting alone in a quiet room, the mind starts to look for distractions and you you've unfocused from your task at hand. So that was really interesting. Kind of that is. And it's funny because every time I wrote either of my books, I was in a crowded room. Like, I love that idea of pairing people and, and one computer. So I was like, okay, what would it be like to work there? So, you know, day one, hey, Karen, welcome to the team. You are our UX designer on this project, and we've brought you in. And here's Bob. And you'll be sitting beside Bob all day long <laughs> and working on one computer together. <laughs> I can imagine I would be like, What? Like I excuse me, where's my cube? <laughs> well, excuse me, where's my cube? How am I gonna check my personal email today? Uh-huh. This feels uncomfortable. And you know, all the sort of human body issues also, right? Oh yeah, my you're in my bubble. Yeah. yeah. My yeah. personal bubble is, you know, and I'm Canadian, so I have a very large personal bubble in comparison to some of my American. I didn't friends. realize it was it, that bubbles changed oh. across national boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, they do. I can imagine in Italy, the bubbles are very small. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think they exist actually. <laughs> <laughs> so how does that, you know, I presume during the interview process, people are introduced to these ideas, but how does someone who's used to being in this other environment, acclimatize like what's the how do you how do you onboard for that i'll back up a little bit into more of a meta thought about culture in general and how it works here at menlo specifically i think if you want to be intentional about the culture within your organization 
you should certainly think about the specific practices you use that reinforce those cultures, that cultural intention every day. So, you know, if the poster on the wall says one thing, but all the behaviors inside the room say another, the behaviors in the room are what define the culture, not the poster on the wall. And so even backing up to the open space, there's an HB researched article now that just came out that declared open office ideas are probably the stupidest idea ever conceived. They do not work. They've never worked. And we need to stop this practice as soon as possible. I know this because every time those articles come out, people send them to me. So I have every article. If you want to kill an open office idea inside your culture, just write me. I've got every book, every article, but don't talk to me. Just have me send you the stuff. And I tell them, I said, we didn't build an open office. We built an open culture. Our space reflects our deepest held cultural beliefs around transparency, communication, collaboration, and teamwork. And so there's a lot of alignment between the space setup and that. But now let's go down deeper because we pair, and that's unusual. All of your misgivings are totally on point, especially if you've never worked like that before. It might be intriguing because Rob told you great things about Menlo, and you're like, oh my gosh, I think that would be amazing. I think it would be amazing. I'm not sure it would be amazing. So what we did was we reinvented all of the standard HR practices around building our team. How do we recruit? How do we interview? How do we evaluate people during the interview? How do we make a selection decision based on all of that? And then how do we onboard new people? And what's the process even after onboarding in the long term? Because we knew that this kind of environment, as you were saying, is unusual. We're not unique. We're still rare, though, particularly for a software. And when you put the pairing thing on, again, not unique, but certainly rare that anyone would pair as diligently as we do. And so what we did was we threw out the standard book, all of the things I used to do as a manager when I was hiring people, because I hated the hiring process, quite frankly. So we said, well, let's have an interview without questions and without resume review. Let's make it an audition. And let's give the people who are interviewing a chance to gain an experience from the interview that would start to acclimatize them to our approach so that when they're making their side of the decision, because they should be making a selection decision too, you know, it should be two-way street, they've had a chance to directly experience what it would feel like to work here so that they don't come in on day one and go, oh my God, I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> this, you know, Rob described it as so much fun, but Rob never actually worked there. He, he visited for a day, you know, and he said it was the most amazing thing. They've got this great culture. And then you find out I hated here. And I, I sold my house in Vancouver. You know, my, my family divorced me because they didn't want to move to Michigan. And, you know, but Rob said it was a really great place to work. So what we do is we bring... 30 or 40 or 50 people in at a time. And we do a mass interview. And it looks like speed dating. Because what we do is we pair you with another candidate. So it's two candidates paired together, working on the same task at the same time, single pencil, single piece of paper. And then we give you the weirdest instructions ever. Your job is to get the person sitting next to you a second interview. Make your partner look good. Support the stranger who's competing for the same job you are support them and help them. If they struggle, help them out. If you know something they don't, give it to them. We're going to observe you. So you and your, you and Rob are paired together. And in that pairing, 
there's going to be a Menlonian sitting across from you simply taking notes about what they see so that when they review your behaviors later, they'll remember what they saw. And it's success-oriented. We actually want you to succeed. So we will give you failure modes before you even begin. Don't grab the pencil out of Rob's hands. Ask for it politely. Don't ignore your peer partner and focus all your attention on the observer. Include Rob in the discussion. You know, seek first to understand before being understood. You know, ask questions. Uh, make him feel comfortable if he's uncomfortable. You'll do this for 20 minutes and then we switch the pairs because that's the way we work here. No pair ever lasts longer than a week here. And so we'll do that three times with you while you're here. And Rob will also get three different pair partners, three different observers, and then we send you all home. So the first mass interview takes two hours. So 50 people in, 50 people observed, 50 people go home. There would have been 25 of us who watched the 50 of you. And then we talk about each one of you individually and literally that evening make a decision on who we will invite in for a second interview. 30 or 50 down to what, about a dozen or so or less? Usually the first pass is about a 50% washout rate. So then what will happen is we'll start to do some numerical calculations on how many people do we actually need? Because the second pass is another roughly 50% washout rate. Second pass is you come in for a day, come in all by yourself, and you pair in the morning with one Menlonian and you pair in the afternoon with another. Doing real work on a client project, much like you were describing earlier, you're like, oh my gosh, I mean, I'm going to be here with somebody all day long, like in my bubble, <laughs> you know, chair like bumped right up to me, doing work together in a single computer. Yep, that's the way it's going to work. At the end of the day, there's three more votes on how you did the two people you paired with. And you, because you might find out after, and we pay you for this day because it seems kind of onerous to have you in for a whole day, but we want to give you a chance to see what it really feels like. And I will tell you, most people go home exhausted after the first day. I bet. Yeah. Because they're like, yeah, I, I remember one time watching somebody just like shuffling out and I said, how was your day? They said, it was awesome. I said, you look kind of tired. Yeah. How do you guys do it? I said, what? You guys work all day long. I said, yeah, you probably never worked eight hours in an eight-hour day, have you? No, it's, <laughs> it's an amazing pace. I don't know how you do it every day, right? And then if that day works, if three thumbs up again, the two people you paired with and you, we will invite you in for a paid three-week trial. And then you'll do three weeks, and they don't necessarily have to be contiguous because you may have something else going on in your life would make that impossible. But we want to give you the best possible chance against success orientation to determine for yourself, and obviously we're doing our own self-determination around this, is can you adapt? We know you won't be perfect at this because you've never done it before. That's okay. But are you starting to get it? Do you see how this works? Are you starting to understand what the implications of this for you personally are you a contributor? Do you support the person sitting next to you? Are you willing to say, I don't know, when you really don't know? Because that's a hard thing for people to admit, especially if they've been sort of hoisted up for a long period of time, you know, and they've always wanted to be seen as the smartest person in the room and all that sort of thing. So yeah, so we reinvented the interview process to go directly after the concerns you just expressed. So the selection process itself is, is an onboarding and you have lots of opportunity for people to either self-select in or out. 
or other filters along the way. I mean, I, it also seems to be a developmental process. And even for people that may not end up working at Menlo, I'm sure they've learned a lot about the world having gone through that. We had one woman who told us after the interview process, the first one, just the three 20-minute pairings, she came up to us and she said, I don't really care if I get the job. I mean, I'd like to. The interview alone has changed my life. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. I like that. And there have been some interesting experiments. Our team runs a lot of experiments here. I tell one story in the latest book about Scott who failed the three-week trial and the team did a reset and did three more weeks. And ultimately it worked, but it wasn't a certainty. And now he's one of the best Menlonians ever. Thinking about college, but worried about getting into debt? Check out collegeconfident.org. They'll help you avoid college debt and get into the school of your dreams. I keep thinking about where you might have been the day before you started Menlo and the the moment before you decided, you know what? Because it's a weird idea. Only giving people one computer, it's cost saving, maybe. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Because computers are so expensive compared to people, right? Right. Where was the aha, the moment? Like, what can, can you remember that moment? And how, like, talk to me about how weird that flipping is. <laughs> Say, okay, we're going to only have half the computers and everybody's going to be paired. Like, talk to me about that, how that felt and what gave you the, because I had a team and, and a business for a while. And if I had suggested that to my people at the time, they would have completely, you know, totally given me the, finger and just said screw you karen there's no way like that's I exactly so- what happened karen that's exactly what happened after they didn't make eye contact with me and didn't say a word Talk about how many people were working for you at the time so that was 14 programmers at the time and a, a, another set of people beyond them and i suggested to them and i'll tell you why i was thinking about this because i think that's an important part of the message as well but just because you brought up the you got to be out of your mind karen My team, when I suggested to them that I just read this book by a guy named Kent Beck on something called Extreme Programming, and in it, he mentioned this idea of having two people on one computer. And I said to the team, I said, I'm really thinking hard about this. What do you think? No response. No, really, I want to know what you think. Heads down. You know, I think it was one of those where, you know, when you put your head down, you're like, if I don't make eye contact, he'll go away. Right. <laughs> or I will disappear. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, he is dead to me now, you know? <laughs> and so finally, one of my guys raises his hand. And I said, Gil, tell me what you think. And he said, let me tell you, blood, mayhem, murder. That's what I think. That was his response. And there was a second response that I'll tell you about in a minute. But let me tell you where this came from for me, because it's really important to understand. I just had this LinkedIn message come to me from a gentleman who's been following me, Red Chief Joy Officer. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm where you were when you were in your 30s. Help me. Can you tell me how to get started? So I get it. I was dyed-in-the-wool programmer by the time I was just a kid. I was 13 years old. I fell in love with computers back then. Way back in 1971, there were, in fact, computers back then. They were a little different than they are now. But I learned to program as a kid. I got my first job as a programmer before I could drive. Eventually came to University of Michigan, got a couple of degrees, and launched a career in a profession that I thought would carry me for a lifetime. I was good at it. I was passionate about it. I loved doing the work. It was challenging work. But by my mid-30s, I was in a deep trough of disillusionment because 
everything was going wrong. The software industry is filled with chaos and bureaucracy simultaneously. And I would come home after very long days away from family, sometimes all nighters. And my wife would look at me and she'd say, honey, you look really tired. Did you get a lot done today? And I'd be like, oh my God, I got nothing done today. I ran from meeting to meeting, from fire to fire, from phone call to phone call, from problem list to problem list, but absolutely zero done. It didn't matter where I was in the managerial chain. I kept getting promotions. Everyone around me told I was succeeding, and I knew I, in my heart I wasn't. And by my mid-30s, I literally wanted out. You'll appreciate this. I wanted to start a canoe camp in the boundary waters of Minnesota. That was my escape route, just below Quitico Provincial Park, right around Quitico, Minnesota area. But my wife laughed at me to this day at that suggestion that my girls and her would follow me to the boundary water. So I was trapped. I was scared. I was stuck in a profession that I knew I couldn't do for another 30 years. And in that moment, I decided there was an opportunity inside this pain. And I started reading books, but not books on technology. I started reading books on organizational design, on teamwork, on management, future visioning, all that kind of stuff. And I started digging my way out. I'm, as my co-founder likes to say, the infernal optimist. I believe when you stick me in a room full of manure, there's a pony producing it. So I'm going to go find the pony. But 1999, I'd been a VP for two years. Somehow I mustered the personal energy for about a decade to keep researching and searching. And in 1999, I read a book, this book on extreme programming by Kent Beck, saw a video on the industrial design firm IDEO, and literally had what Franz Johansson calls a click moment. That moment where everything becomes crystal clear, not because it was just pure epiphany because I'd been mentally preparing myself for this moment. I was searching. I didn't know what I was looking for. I only knew I would know it when I saw it. And when I saw what Kent Beck described, and it was he described working in a big open room. He described working shoulder to shoulder in pairs at a single computer and some technical techniques that were very important as well to me. And all of a sudden it was like, I get it. I see it. And so then I went to my team and I said, let me tell you what I'm seeing. And that's when I got the blood mayhem murder. Right. (laughs) Right. And, you know, and clearly they were like, Rich, we're not seeing what you're seeing. (laughs) And like, well, okay, but let's be honest here, guys. You can't be happy with the results we're producing. And they got that. But the trouble was they were happy with their individual results, but the individual results never hooked together. And that's what I needed to do as a leader. I needed all of their work to work together. We can all be cleverly connected to some slice of a tower of knowledge we have and say, oh, we're okay. You know, if, if Rich, if you can get all of them to change, I'll be really happy. But please, for God's sakes, leave me alone. I'm fine, right? But after that blood mayhem murder moment, two of my guys came up to me kind of offline from the meeting. And they said, you know what, Rich? We'd like to try this. We're intrigued. We didn't want to say anything at the meeting because you know they'd be outcast by their peers. So I authorized the first pairing experiment for the two of them, put them off in a room together. And three weeks into that experiment, Claire, one of the two guys, Claire and Bob were doing it. Claire pulls me aside in the parking lot on the way into work one day. And he says, hey, I got a question for you. Are you still going to pay me to work here? I'm like, what? He says, I got to tell you, this thing we're doing, it's so much fun. It doesn't feel like work anymore. I'm not sure I should get paid. 
He says, we're so productive. We're making, we're making such amazing progress. I'm so excited to get to work every day. Okay, so now let's take the compare and contrast. Blood mayhem murder. I will work for you for free. I am getting like three sigmas outside the bell curve of standard response, right? And I've learned when you're going to make significant change, the energy for the change is going to come from the edges, not from the middle. And we have to embrace both of them. I have to address the blood mayhem murder concerns and embrace that positive energy. And so I tricked my team for a week into trying it so they could learn a new programming language, Java. Back in 1999, that was a big deal. I said, hey, guys, we're, you know, it's just going to be a week. We're just going to use the week to learn Java. And they were like, yay, Java, because programmers like to learn new things. And I said, we're going to use the blood mayhem murder techniques. And they were like, yay, Java. You know, I worked with a guy who called that method look cake. Uh-huh, exactly, precisely. And so they were distracted by the shiny object of Java. And yet we used the pairing and we switched the pairs every day so they could all work with one another. And at the end of the week, I pulled them in. I said, guys, how did the week go? Did you learn a lot? They're like, oh my gosh, can't believe how much we learned. Can't believe how much we got done. Can't believe how much fun this was. Can't believe how much I got to know all the people I've worked with for decades, but I never really knew them until now. And they didn't know it at the time, right? I am just reeling them in with every comment. And then I looked at them, I said, awesome. This is the way we're going to work from now on. And all of a sudden, no eye contact. <laughs> the head's back down again. They were, like, they were like, no. I said, guys, what did you just tell me? Never had more fun. Never got more done. Never felt like you learned as much. Never enjoyed your peers as much. And they're like, yeah, but no. And so it took another six months to change the pass in the carpet, to literally get them to work like this rather than the old way. And I was patient with them and I was persistent and all the things you need to be as a gentle leader to get them to try something new. But eventually the patterns changed. And I will tell you, one of my oldest programmers, David, came up to me in that time and he sat me down, closed my door and he says, Rich, you had no idea when you started this, this was going to be this successful. And if you look at your life, you had everything. You had the title, the office, the stock options, the paycheck. You had everything. Yet you were willing to put all of that on the line for this change that you didn't know at the beginning would go this well. And he just he was trying to learn, actually, about leadership. And he said, how did you do that? And I said, it was actually really easy. And he's like, seriously? Because he was thinking it was courage. I'm like, no, David, this wasn't about courage. I decided in that moment that the risk of staying the same was far greater than the risk of change. And so I started running towards safety, not towards risk. Because you see, David, you're thinking about the worldly stuff. I was thinking about my heart for what I did as a profession. I was looking ahead in my life and saying, I can't do this the same way for another 30 years. I had to make a change or I was going to go to the canoe camp. And so for me, it was existential in my career. It was what I was feeding my family and, and paying the house payment and the car payments and, and taking vacations. And I didn't want to be that burnt out guy that would come home and kick the dog and yell at my kids. And they'd be like, why is dad so miserable at work? You know, I don't ever want to work in his profession. I don't ever want to work. For God's sakes, I love my dad, but I hate seeing what work is doing to him. And I didn't want to be that guy for my kids. I didn't want to be that guy for my wife. And so a lot of this boiled down to 
this fundamental understanding of what, quite frankly, was a selfish pursuit at first for me. I wanted to build the place I wanted to go to every day. And it worked. I didn't know it would work. But I knew I had to try something and it had to be big and it had to be different. That's amazing. I remember the first time we met Rich and, and I heard a version of, of that story a little differently, but we were in an environment and we were passing around blue slips. I remember like different people's ideas and all that. And I just, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, found a blue slip that I wrote down during your talk and it had three words on it. And in fact, it, it was sitting up, you know, in, in the corner here of my work area, run the experiment. Those three words have been pretty motivational to me. I think, you know, backed by your story, but in fact, even when Karen came to me a while back and said, hey, what do you think about a podcast? And I'm like scared to death about the possibility. I'm like, how much time? What would we do? Would anyone listen to us? And I looked and I saw that card and said, run the experiment. I don't know, Karen, if you remember that. And I said, hey, this guy, you know, Rich said, you know, just run the experiment. Let's do it. And so you know, that's been inspirational and motivational for me over the last couple of years. So thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, and I, I bet, Rob, that I told that story in the context of the Menlo Babies experiment. I think so. Yeah. yeah. It's usually yeah. where I introduce the idea of run the experiment. And uh, Karen, I'm happy to talk about the Menlo Babies experiment. Yeah, talk about the Menlo Babies experiment. And you know that extends to the Menlo Puppies experiment as well. Yep. So. <laughs> what I will say in the, in the book, I use this metaphor of airplanes in the new book, Chief Joy Officer. I talk about flying and airplanes because it's a passion of mine. But now when I give talks about the book, I actually use a metaphor of an airplane. There's four forces that work on an aircraft. There's the, the lift force that causes it to come off the ground. There's the weight force that holds it back down. There's the thrust force that pulls it ahead and the drag force that pulls it backwards. And for an airplane to successfully fly, you need more lift than weight and you need more thrust than drag. Pretty simple equation. Same thing's true of human teams. We need a lift of human energy. We need to have more lift of human energy than we have weight of bureaucracy. We need to have the thrust of purpose. And that thrust of purpose has to overcome the drag of fear inside the organization. And so one of the things that I believe, and Rob, you'll confirm this now based on the fact that you're actually doing a podcast. One thing that gets the lift of human energy high is that you didn't say to Karen, yeah, yeah, we should, let's have a meeting. Let's, let's invite some people to a meeting. Let's write a policy. Let's form a committee on podcasting. And, and then we'll, we'll have a decision-making process. Because if you, anything you put to committee will die in the vine. The difference in an, a run the experiment mentality and mindset is take action. Try it. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? You know, you have a great conversation with three people you really like and you recorded it and you show your grandkids someday, hey, look, uh, look how young I was 20 years ago or something. And they're like, wow, dad, this was really a cool talk you had. I'm surprised you didn't share it with anybody. Well, we never did that part of the experiment. I don't know. But 11 years ago, Tracy had little Maggie and her husband and, and she, uh, when she was ready to come back from maternity leave, didn't have viable daycare options because the daycare they planned to use was full and grandparents lived too far away to help. She didn't know what to do. She really wanted to get back to work because we had an exciting new project starting. I had a screaming match in my brain when Tracy presented the challenge to me. And the screaming match went something like this. The dark voice said, don't you dare say what you're about to say. <laughs> HR will kill you, you know, the lawyers will freak, the insurance policy go through the roof. The bright voice whispering in my ear said, 
it's your company. You can do whatever you want. You don't even have an HR department. And so I, I looked at Tracy and I said, bring her in. Huh? I said, bring her into work. She said, all day? I said, sure. She said, every day? I said, why not? And then she looked around this big open room. She's like, Rich, where will I put her? I said, Tracy, she's three months old. She's not going anywhere. Put her in a bassinet on the floor next to where you're working. She's like, but what if she makes a fuss? I said, here, it's like a noisy restaurant. You'll never hear it. She said, come on, you've raised three girls. What if she makes that big baby fuss? It'll destroy the ambiance of the whole space. And I said, Tracy, you're the mom. I trust you. You'll do the right thing. We'll work it out together. Let's run the experiment. That was 11 years ago, Karen. Just about three months ago. I'm practically crying here. It gets better. I've had male German engineers come up to me in tears after this story, by the way. So don't don't feel that uh, you shouldn't be shedding tears around this because it's one of the most delightful things we've ever done. Just about three months ago, Josiah and Flynn finally left after about three months here. Two Menlo babies simultaneously, which is fun. We even pair the babies now, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) They were Menlo babies. Just to be clear, this is really fascinating. They were Menlo babies number 22 and 23 in the last 11 years. That's incredible. This has been a phenomenal experience for us. And it is just so heartwarming. We discovered some things. Did the babies fuss? Of course they did. But it was the team's response we didn't expect. They were like, no, 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 it's my turn to hold the oh baby. My God, what a lovely, like, who would love to have the baby? You know, it's better than puppies, I'm just saying. Oh, yeah. Well, we got those two. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, what a challenge. So that phrase, as Rob mentioned, has just become burned into the Menlo culture. Yeah. So whenever anybody says, hey, I got this idea, the, almost the innate response now is, okay, let's run the experiment. Rather than let's form a committee, let's write the policy, and then let's implement it. It's like, no, just try something. Action orientation versus contemplation orientation lifts the human energy of your team. Thank you so much, Rich. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I have too. I think we could have done this all darn afternoon. Right. So much fun. (laughs) This episode was made possible due to the generous support from College Confident, who helps students get into college and not into debt. Find out more about College Confident at collegeconfident.org. Thank you to AMI, who have nurtured us in developing this podcast, is the source of so many of our guests, and of course, the founder, Stan Griskevich, is also the author of the original book, and dare I say, the godfather of positive turbulence. AMI is a pioneering nonprofit organization comprised of committed individuals who foster and leverage creativity and innovation in organizations and society. AMI identifies leading edge innovation, shares experiences, sponsors research, and recognizes innovation and creative processes. Find out more at aminnovation.org. And a big thank you to Mac Avenue Music Group, our contributing sponsor for providing our podcast soundtrack, Late Night Sunrise. If you want to find out more about your hosts, Positive Turbulence, our guests, or check out our very cool and very diverse reading list, head over to PositiveTurbulence.com. Until next time, keep the turbulence positive.